Amen. Good morning, church. Happy New Year to you. Luke chapter 2 is where you should be. Open up your Bibles to that. Uh, kids or adults, if you got new devices, uh, you're allowed to open to the Bible right now. Uh, but we're going to self-police here. If we, if we find you playing other things or getting distracted, uh, your dear brothers and sisters will help nudge you back towards the, the Word. So uh, naming things is really, really important. It's a huge responsibility. And this is why God gave us pets, right? So we could work out our mistakes of naming things on pets before we have children. Uh, Because once you give a kid a name, it's kind of a big deal and it stays with them for a really long time. Uh, I would venture to guess that some of you in this room have some unique pet names uh, and and that there might be a story behind why you named that pet something. We all put some thought and reason as to why we name something uh, someone. So um, anyone care to share about a pet name that, that you have given and the story behind it? Um, and then secondly, you could share that, or is there any naming regret that you have? And let's keep this towards your pets, because parents, if you regret naming your kid what you named him, Man, it's done. Like, you've got to get over that and deal with it and embrace it, right? But are there any naming regrets that you have for pets? So I need, I need a couple of you, uh, if we have any pet names uh, and stories behind it, um, to just raise your hand so I can see you and share, share with us your, your naming adventures. Anyone? Yeah. I had a dog named Muhammad Ali. A dog named Muhammad Ali. She was not a male no more. <laughs> oh, so we had a female dog named Muhammad Ali. Ali S. I don't know how you do that. Was it a boxer by chance? Okay. All right. Anyone else? That's that's good. When you name, yeah. Yes, that's right. Okay. Anyone else? I didn't know to check. Lesson learned. See this, and and now they have children, and they have learned that. Good job, Paul. Okay. The yellow lab muffin. We brought him home and our oldest daughter said, you cannot keep that name. It's no good with muffin. We ended up Marley. Marley. So you just changed it. Marley is my movie. Yeah, I was going to say. Was that before or after the movie? Uh, It was after the movie. Okay, okay. So, uh, thank you for that. Um, So, so when, when naming, some of you have named... Uh, children, and, and you know these things. Some of you are anticipating maybe one day naming children, um, but, but it's a massive responsibility. Becky and I clearly like naming people because we just, we enjoy that process, so we just keep having people added to our lives that we get to name. Uh, when you're naming someone, there are some pitfalls we have to avoid, right? Like, isn't there something to the fact that if you have known someone with that certain name as you're discussing names, and if there's someone from your past uh, that, that you really don't want your child named after. So, so a name has to clear that hurdle, right? Um, we all know that junior high is tough. It's just a tough age. And so kids are cruel no matter what. No matter what your name is, kids are cruel. But we don't want to help them right, be more cruel to your baby who will one day be in middle school by giving them a name that you know, rhymes with certain things. And so, so you go through this little thing of like, 
how could this name be used in a teasing way? You have to sort through that. Uh, some of you have very interesting uh, last names or names that are, that mean something else. So you have to think, like, does this go with with that last name? And it's a huge deal, right? And you want this to, like, stick forever. Like, you want to really like this name forever. This morning in our, in our text, we're going to... We're going to see the name above all names given to the most important baby ever born. And I can say the most important baby ever born even in front of my own children. Because he's the king of kings. And as we see this naming process, uh, we, the, the, the name that we sing uh, about and sing to each and every week, we get to sort of see this unfold uh, this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We started off uh, this series in Luke at the beginning because it seemed like the right place to begin, Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, Luke gives us some thoughts here, and he sort of lays out something that we looked at about a month ago now. And the idea was this, there are no unbelievers in the world, none. It's just people that believe in different things. So everyone is a believer. Everyone believes in some things. And by believing in one thing, you are by default a, an, an unbeliever in something else. So we have this weird terminology, particularly in our culture, that says, are you a believer or an unbeliever? That's a nonsensical question. Or a question. So this ongoing test that we talked about about a month ago um, is, what should I believe? And what Luke does at the very beginning is he is offering up certainty. He is offering up the ability to know what you've been taught. He says, and as much as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and then verse 4 says that you, Theophilus he's writing to, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so he asks this question, how can we know? How can we know something? Again, a month ago, we keep our kids in service on the first Sunday of every month. We have this little tradition uh, that we do that. We offer to parents, parents, if you want to keep your kids in here every Sunday, that's fantastic. We think that's great. There might be a little bit of extra fidgeting, a little bit of extra noise. Um, sometimes that's from the adults, not necessarily from the kids. Um, but, but we welcome kids in service once a month. And a month ago when we were here, I fed some of our more hungry congregants some food. I gave them my typical breakfast that I have here at work, a banana, a yogurt, and a breakfast bar, and all three in both services wolfed these things down with hardly a glance at wondering what it was they were putting in their body. And we asked the question, how can they know? How did you know that that was true? Now, maybe their thought process went something like this. Dave has never been accused or convicted of poisoning anyone, so it's probably safe. Uh, this banana was probably harvested and transported at the right temperatures, and it's, it's probably good. It's got a covering on it, and so, you know, whatever. I've, I've eaten these things in the past, and they're still probably good. We brought that up because of this. Much of our daily life is moved forward and progressed based on probabilities. And what our brain has learned to do is to prioritize things. So instead of researching and asking all kinds of interview questions and doing laboratory tests on everything we ever eat, we skip right by that. And we say there's a high probability that this is a good thing to eat. Now that's an interesting thought because when you pause, you think you're putting something in your mouth, into your body, that could potentially really, really harm you, right? So 
Here's, here's why I'm bringing all of this up. When the stakes go up, so should our discernment level as to whether something is true or untrue. If you're being served food at a restaurant, there is an implicit offering that says this is safe food to eat. This is good for you. I'm not trying to harm you. When the stakes go up, you should have some discernment go up with it. So I'm thinking right now about rock climbing. I'm thinking about parachute jumping, right? If someone just tosses you a parachute and says, here, put this on, uh, you're going you're gonna to wonder, like, who was it that just tossed this to me? A waiter hands you food. You don't interview the waiter. You don't look for mental stability in the waiter. You just eat the food. Someone tossed you a parachute. You want to know a little bit more about that, right? Why? Because the stakes have gone up, so you've learned to prioritize. So when it comes to our eternal soul, truth statements about our eternal soul, and whether we have an eternal soul, these are things that we should really dive into and really seek to gain clarity on and gain certainty on. Luke writes his gospel. He tells us up front. He writes his gospel to inspire confidence. He says, I want you to be able to trust the things that you have learned. You are doing what I did, kids, when, you were, when I was your age. You are sitting in church on a Sunday morning. You are learning some things. This, I hope, is part of a sort of robust learning that goes on throughout the week. Can we trust what we've learned? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, inspire faith. But catch this. This is massive. Are you ready? They don't inspire blind faith. The Gospels don't just say, here's a truth statement. Just believe it. Don't ask any questions of us. The Gospels inspire faith, but not blind faith. They give rationale and reason. Luke is a doctor. Anyone know a doctor or anyone a doctor in this room? If you know or, or are a doctor, raise your hands. Okay? All right. So we know some doctors. Depending on how well you know them, you know that quite possibly, like sort of broadly speaking, this is not a profession that you just have people willy-nilly kind of chucking stuff around. Luke's a doctor by profession, and he is saying at the outset... I'm not writing mythology. I'm writing an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished among us. You should expect reasons to support truth statements about your eternal soul. Don't let yourself off the hook. Well, that's just not true. Why? Don't let me off the hook. Well, the pastor just said it. Why? Don't let other people off the hook. If someone makes a truth statement about your eternal destiny, about your eternal soul, you ought to expect reasons. You ought to look for that. You ought to say, what is that standing on? Should I give any weight to what is being said or not? Now, this morning, I'm not going to give every reason of the statements I make. I am going to make a statement that I hope you will see sort of extracted from the text itself. If you're taking notes... Um, I have written the most important thing I think that I can say on, on here already. So you already have it right. There it is in front of you. I'm not trying to, to hide it. Here's the, here's the title. Salvation has a name. Here's the statement. God's deliverance is only found in the person of Jesus. And people miss it to their own peril when they search elsewhere. 
I'm going to read a passage of scripture that is right after the Christmas story, not nearly as popular as all the ones we've been reading around Christmas time, but still probably quite familiar. I was kind of stunned, to be honest, as I was studying for this a couple of weeks ago and looking at this, at how much is in here. This is just sort of true of the scripture. You sit with the scripture long enough, there are just these gold nuggets sitting around that you go, man, I've never seen that before. And I hope that, that you will see this as well. I want you to watch for a couple of things. I want you to watch for people who are being discussed who really believe what God has said. Luke gives us some details that show us that careful obedience to God's word is supremely important to the characters that we are reading about in our passage today. This is true of our lives as well. Trust shapes our lives because of this. What you trust in, what you believe, determines where you will spend your money, where you will spend your time, where you go, who you go with, what you avoid, who you avoid, why you are with people. What we believe determines the very course of our lives. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice the certainty of the people in this passage. There is some absolute conviction that is reported by Luke to us, the reader. And I ask myself, I'd invite you to ask yourself, why are these people so sure? What made them so convinced that this was absolutely true? We know the difficulty of getting to the bottom of things, of getting to who should we believe, who should we trust. Why do these people have such conviction? Now, I want you to sort of see full screen this amazing stained glass so you can see sort of the the biblical accuracy that this artist took care to give to us. So as I read this passage, um, this stained glass is just built right off of that, and there's some choice little details to it. All right, Luke chapter 2, verse 21, follow along with me as I read. And at the end of eight days, when he, we're talking about Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purifications, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifices according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Do you notice all kinds of obedience happening here and all kinds of little details that Luke gives to us to show that careful obedience? 
when you look at Mary and Joseph, we don't need to be told that they care deeply about the things of God. You don't need to be told they're God-fearing people. You don't need to be told that they have a simple trust in their father, their shepherd, to care for them, to guard them, to provide for them. They simply have a trust to do as he says. Several times what we just read is according to the law. They were doing these things according to the law. It takes time to pack up the family and travel somewhere to be careful to obey God's attention. It takes effort and money to do that. We know from where it was originally written that uh, these, these two little pigeons is the offering that would be given for someone who's on the, the poorer end of, of financial status. So there's all this cost involved and careful attention to detail. Why? Because they trusted God's word. Look down at verse 39. We'll get here in a moment. But it says this, And when they had performed, watch this, Everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. So here's a question that emerged like a bolt of lightning to me, and I offer it to you. Are you careful or clumsy with the law of God? Maybe like your family, there are some in your family who are known more to be careful and those who are known more to be clumsy. Um, now I know the more PC way would be spatially challenged or grip impaired, but you, you know what I'm saying. And, and we have a couple, they're, they're already looking at each other. I can see them looking at each other. We have a couple in our family, I, I will leave them nameless, that are known to be clumsy. And, and it comes up regularly because there are just things breaking and dropping and whatever else. That's just, that's just a normal thing of, of what goes on in our home. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. The level of, of, of care, sometimes clumsiness just happens because people aren't that good at holding on to things, and gravity is always there, sort of ever-present reality for them. But sometimes clumsiness can occur um, when, when we don't value the thing that we're holding. So the level of care often is proportionate to the perceived level of value that's there. So I want you to imagine uh, young children. Look at me for a second. Young children in the room. If mom says, here, I want you to take this stack of plates. Now listen carefully. These are like real plates, right? Now, I'll just let you know, these are plates that we have in our home. Um, They're the ones that are, I think, supposed to be shatter resistant, but I can attest they're not. Um... (laughs) So, so if mom says, here, take this stack of plates and carry them into the dining room, right? What you would probably do, there's a little bit of weight to this. You would probably grab these plates and you would, you would walk in and you would begin to set the plates around the table, right? There'd be some level of care there. Now, let me go in two different directions for a minute. These are just sort of regular everyday dinner plates, okay? What if mom pulled out the fine china. I don't know if people still have fine china. I don't know. We certainly don't. It breaks. But if you have fine china and you pull it out of a special place and mom looks at you and says, here, take these plates. Now, two hands. Now, very, very carefully. In fact, take them in two stacks so you do not drop them. Do you sense the level of care go up as you're trying to walk carefully over to the the dining room table? Of, 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 Of course you do. Now, watch this. What if mom says this? Here, it's time for lunch. 
We're doing hot dogs and chips. Get these plates and, and get them passed around. And she just hands them to you. You would be like this. Why? Because this is a paper plate. No big deal, right? The level of care is proportionate to the perceived value of what you're holding. Now, let me show you something. There are some people who dress up once a week and play church. If you dress up once a week and play church, let me show you what this looks like to an outside observer. If this represents the law of God, there are some people who throughout the week have their plate and they carry it around and they use it, look at that wind noise, they use it for whatever they need to. At times it gets, you know, it gets a little bit cumbersome to hold that. So you just kind of shove it here in your back pocket. Now, if you're waiting at a bus stop, again, I don't know if I live in the 50s right now, but, uh, you know, if you're at a bus stop and, and you see sort of a wet spot, you may take it there and say, oh, I need to, I need to use that to sit on. There we go. That keeps me from, from getting wet, right? And then it comes time for Sunday. And so really quickly, you come to church and sing. You come to church and act really careful with your plate. Now, do that week after week. Some of you were raised in this home. Some of you might be living this life. Come week after week, and honestly, there's a certain sense that from a distance, you can't really tell the value of this or how this has been treated. We can sort of put on a good show that we care deeply about this thing, but I'll tell you who we don't fool. We don't fool those we, that we live with. We just don't. It looks kind of odd to us, in fact, if we see all week long this thing just mangled, forgotten, left to the side, under the birdcage, whatever we do with it. And then we come to church and we, and we put on this sort of show of, of how careful we are with this thing, how precious it is, because that's what other people seem to be doing. Your care for the Word of God, hear this, leaks. I mean, you cannot contain it. It comes oozing out of your life. Ben just prayed that his life would be known, that he'd be, he'd, it would be seen to be one that glorifies God. I would say this, for the careful observer, that's true of every one of us. We can see what's important. We can see if there's sort of a show being put on or not. And with Mary and Joseph and the details that Luke is careful to give us, we see a clear trust of God's law, a clear trust of the one who gave the law because they are so careful to obey every, deal, every, every detail of it. The care not to break God's law is not because the law is fragile. It's because it is exceedingly valuable. Let me just say, if you're new to NBC or if you're old to NBC, this is why in this church family, we are constantly encouraging people toward action. We know there is something inside all of us. There is a complacency and an apathy inside all of us that think that the job is done once we've heard, once we know. But we all know in everyday life, in every sector of life, it's different to know something than to actually do something. 
Plenty of people know but don't experience the power of God and won't until they put their belief in action. James says this, that faith without action is dead. He also said this, that belief without obedience is simply what demons do. Of course, demons believe in God, but they don't trust Him. They don't obey Him. They simply ignore His commands. You don't need to turn there, but look at John chapter 5 for a minute. John chapter 5 says this, Jesus talking, truly, truly. Why does he say truly twice? This is like emphatically true. Catch this. It's Jesus saying, dial this in, listen to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but is passed from death to life. Whoever hears my word and believes, he differentiates between these two things. Often what we see with Jesus and in the scripture is belief and action interchangeable. Here we see that belief is something different than simply hearing it. And look what is, it, what, what is at stake. Eternal life, pardon from sin, not coming into judgment, and life or death, passing from death to life. That's what's at stake. So look back at your paper for, for a second. God's deliverance is only found in the person of Jesus. And people miss it to their own peril when they search for it elsewhere. I use the word peril on purpose. This is life or death stuff. So what's the key? The key is action. The key is obedience wasn't enough for Mary and Joseph to hear, uh, hey, name the child Jesus on the eighth day. Why the eighth day? Because they were told to name it on the eighth day. They didn't do it on the seventh day or the ninth day. Why did they circumcise? Because that's what, that, that's what they were told to do. They followed through on the instructions of God. If God thought it was important enough to write it down or send a personal messenger to them, they thought, we better make it important to us. We better be really, really careful with this. We better pay attention to how we're living so that it's in accord with the things written down by God. All right, I want to make sure that you see this nugget of gold that Simeon says in this passage. Because this is where I got my title. Oh, one more verse. Sorry, James 1.25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Not he will be blessed in his memorization. He will be blessed in his Bible study attendance. He will be blessed in his Greek definitions. He will be blessed in his doing. All right. Here's the nugget I want you to see. Look down at Luke chapter 2, verse 30. One simple line that says this. Simeon talking directly to God. And if you wonder in the stained glass at his position, what he's doing is praying. This is how people in the Middle East would have prayed. Look, look towards the heavens. So he's talking to God and he says this. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. What is he doing while he's praying? He's holding the baby Jesus. He's holding the recently named baby Jesus in his arms. This is an incredible gospel truth because of this. Deliverance is not 
in the many, many, many things that people look for it to be in. Deliverance is not in a change of your circumstances. Deliverance is not in a change of bad habits that you can't seem to kick. It's not in a new regimen of getting yourself physically fit. Deliverance is not found in more blank. Whatever you think that is that's going to make you happy, that's going to save you, that's going to deliver you, that's going to get you free from your past. Deliverance is not in reaching goals or keeping resolutions. Deliverance is found in Jesus Christ. This is huge. Deliverance is in a person, not in a program. God senses salvation not as an impersonal force. Not as a personal holy checklist that if you just get through this checklist, then you'll be at that right level and you'll be right with God. No, he sends salvation. He sends his Christ, the one that would redeem in a person. I'll tell you a burden on my heart. A burden on my heart is this. As I was reading this, my mind went to a passage that sometimes keeps me up at night. I'm supposed to be free from worry as a Christian. Did you know that? Be anxious for nothing. Anxiety reveals a sinful heart that I somehow know more than God or I'm in more control of what I think I'm in control of. But I will confess the sin of worry over this sometimes. I know from experience and from what the Bible tells me and from my own heart that lifelong church people even with their Bibles open, can miss this truth. Lifelong church people. Some of you in this room are lifelong church people. You know what I mean. There was a time when you didn't have a choice. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, friend, they just drug you to church. And at some point, if you're here, you're probably here by choice. But there's a danger in coming to church week after week after week even with your Bible open, I think you're in the right place on the first Sunday of the, of, of the brand new year. I can't think of another place I would want to be than right here with all of you. If you have your Bible open, that's, a, that's, a, that's the right book to have open. But you can miss it, coming to church every single Sunday, being faithful to not only attend Bible study, but watch this, lead the Bible study. And miss it. Deliverance is not found in the message, but in the person who's delivering the message. Just write this down and read it later so you make sure I'm not making it up. But John chapter 5, verse 39. Ready? Jesus talking. He's talking to the pastors, to the elders, to the church leaders. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Catch this. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. One of the most devastating effects of the fall is it makes us totally blind to what's true. Totally blind to what's real. And so there are these massive roadblocks to receiving deliverance. People are blind to what saves them. 
Irreligious people seek for deliverance in the self. Self-improvement, self-pleasure, self-importance. If you're a religious person, don't you know those things are wrong? Don't you know those things aren't the, the, the path to life? I mean, come on. Self-improvement, self-pleasure, self-importance. We know life's not found there. You know where religious people get this wrong? Here's the hurdles religious people have towards deliverance. They seek for it in signs, in writings, in miracles, in little shifts in the wind, in good works in themselves and in others in the organization that they've identified with. We must be on the right track because these great things are happening. I'm doing these awesome things. What Jesus comes along and says is this. If that's where you're searching for it and you're missing the person, you're missing all of it. Isn't this why Jesus constantly called people to himself? Come to me. Come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. Sell your stuff, he says to the rich young guy. And come to me. Take up your cross and come to me. Come to me and you'll no longer go hungry or thirsty. You know why? I'll be enough. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. And in Luke 6, we'll get to this in several weeks' time, he says this. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Deliverance from every one of life's storms is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have never come to Jesus, if you have never accepted his invitation to take his hand, he says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens up, I'm going to eat with him. I'm going to be in fellowship with him. If you've never done that, listen to me clearly. Today's the day of salvation. It's as simple as this, saying yes to the invitation to be in relationship with the risen Jesus Christ. That's where deliverance is found. In case you're unclear on things, let me say this really, really clearly. Everything we do in this room on a Sunday morning is designed and is for nurturing this our relationship to encounter the risen Christ. Every song we sing, every program that we might dream up and think about and invite you into, Every time we open up the word, every time we pause in silence, every time we gather in circles and pray, every dollar that's given is prayed over and thought, how does this do something that furthers an encounter with the risen Jesus and being about what he says to be doing? That's what we're doing as a church family. And if you don't have that, what we do in here is going to be confusing. Let me show you how simple this is, and I want to get back to Simeon for a second. So let's go back into Simeon and see this. How is he certain that this is the, the uh, Christ? How does he know? Do you see the utter conviction? What does he basically say? I can die now. <laughs> I knew that I would see your salvation, and now I see it. In eight-day-old baby Jesus. 
I can die now. What does he have? Catch this. He has the word of God and he has the Holy Spirit. This is explicitly told to us in the text. Verse 29, according to your word. Simeon was a man of God's word, so he knew what to expect. Don't you hear sometimes people griping about God, and in your brain you think you're, you're expecting him to come through on promises he never made. Isn't it easy for us to like create our own promises? God, you said you would do this. I hope you have a loving brother or sister come along and said, God never said he would do that. He said he'd be with you in that, but he never said that that wouldn't happen to you. Oh, okay. Why? We fill up our own expectations in our own mind and we can put those on God. Simeon knew what to expect because he was a man of the word. He was attentive to the word and the Holy Spirit. I told you at the very beginning, Luke takes pains to show the activity of the role of this third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in his gospel. Three times in our text this morning, we have the Holy Spirit mentioned. That Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit, that he was instructed by the Spirit, and that he was led by the Spirit into the temple that day. This is an example of the simple Christian life that every single one of us is called to. This is it. Come to me, Jesus says. Be attentive to his words. Don't just hear them, study them, memorize them, know how they fit in context. Do them. That's the most important part. And then keep in step with the Spirit. Jot down John 14. It's actually, I think, in your community group questions as well. But in John 14, if you just read that chapter, it's Jesus talking about this helper who's going to come. I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you a helper. And in it, he's called the helper, the spirit of truth. He's going to be with Christians and in Christians. He's going to teach Christians. He's going to remind us of all things that we need in life. Christian, hear me. If you've come to Jesus, these resources are yours in abundance. Some of you got new devices for Christmas. Congratulations and be careful. It's a massive time-sucking sound if you listen carefully to any screen in your life. Instead of letting it be a force for evil, let it be a force for good. It was so fun to set up one of my daughter's new screens with the Bible app. And she was so excited to put a Bible reading program on there. And I was so excited to show her just some of this great technology, some of this amazing way to have God's word with you. The Holy Spirit and the word of God are readily available to us in abundance. We have the same things that was available to Simeon. With the few minutes I have left, let me show you that Simeon now turns his attention to the parents, to Mary and Joe. Verse 33. It says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
Now, what exactly the salvation of God looks like in the person of Jesus Christ is still super hazy at this point. If you've never read the story and you can't sort of fill in the blanks and get to the cross, you don't really know that. But if this were a movie, what would happen is the lighting might shift a little bit and the music would certainly shift to indicate something to us. There is, there is the first shadows of the cross happening in this right here. He just turns his head to God, blesses him, says, I can die now, I've seen your salvation. Then he looks right at Mary and Joseph and says specifically to the mother some words that are pretty heavy here. The fall and rising of many, a sign that will be opposed. A sword, Mary, is going to pierce your own soul. Whatever it means to be the mother of the Messiah, we know this. It's going to come at great personal cost. It's going to come with it some pain and suffering. She doesn't know all that that will entail. That's how life is lived, right? God gives us an assignment. He hands us the tools that we need for it. And then little bits and pieces come along the way. God is preparing Mary as well. The thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed. As I was looking at these, it reminded me of the the dark lyrics of some of our Christmas carols. The dark lyrics are there because it's, it's truth-telling. You don't see how bright the light is, how good the good news is, unless you know how bad the bad news is. I'm going to let you read on your own or as a family or as a couple, as a group of friends about the elderly widow named Anna. We're going to skip that part. But let me close by offering up some words to some of our, let's call them seasoned saints. How's that? I think this is a remarkable passage that highlights two very clearly elderly, a brother and a sister in the faith. I love that we have grandparent-aged people in this church. I love it. It's a sign of God. It's a work of God. And let me give some words to you that I hope will be an encouragement. Here's, Here's number one. Number one is this. If you were advanced in age... And again, my children tell me I'm an advanced in age. So this is all kind of relative, right? But if you're up there in age, over the hill and kind of gliding down the other side, let's just put it that way. Let me say this. Ready? Please keep keeping in step with the Spirit. You know why? It fires up the rest of us. I had a conversation two weeks ago. And she's here in the room, so I'll just say her name. Annie Annie is in the back. And the fact that I have been kind of thinking on this a little bit, we had Anna the prophetess who's in here, and I'm meeting with Annie. And at the start of our conversation, there was this sense that, man, when, when two just spirit-filled people, and by that I just mean Christians, when two spirit-filled people get together and have a meeting and the guest of honor is God, and the will of the people beforehand is to say, whatever you reveal to us, we're just going to do it joyfully because we trust you. It's just a super exciting meeting. And this is exactly how our conversation went. She asked to meet with me. I didn't really even know what that was about. But you know what? I was excited because I know Annie to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I know her to be attentive to the word. I know her to be led by the Holy Spirit. So I was just excited. Older saints, hear me. It fires us up when we see you not retire from the faith. 
Persevere. Let me say something else. Don't give up on God's timing. We saw a few weeks ago, Zechariah and Elizabeth, advanced in age, all these delicate ways of saying, they were just old. They didn't give up on God's timing. God used them. In fact, the Christmas story is a beautiful picture of the whole breadth of life that God's on the move. From before a baby shows up in the world in the womb at conception, all the way until you're about to keel over. God's on the move in all of it. So you older Christians amongst us, do not give up on God's timing. God may have given you a dream. God may have had a stirring in you. God may have revealed something to you. Hold on to that. The ark of redemption moves sort of really slowly. It's like watching a flower grow out of the ground and bloom. We can't really see that. We, we want it to be like our TV binge watching. We just want to hurry up and wrap it up. The ark of redemption moves a lot slower than that. Don't you love that Simeon is mentioned here, that he's near the end of his life? Don't you love that Anna, it tells us that she's been this widow for a long, long time. She's an old woman. And here she is being used of God. Here she is recorded in the scriptures. Finally, both of these show us something, that God's people are awaiting people. This is, this is good for all of us to hear. Inherent to being a faithful person of God is to be a waiter. Is to be patient. You know what our, our path is, Christian? Our path is one of patience and one of expectancy. I pray this year you are expectant as you look forward to 2019. I pray you're expected not to just have it be the same old, same old, or not just to grow incrementally in ways, but say, God, would you blow open your kingdom in my mind? Would you show me things in my own heart and life and home and the way I'm going about things that would just leapfrog me forward in this life? I pray your kingdom to come. You know, on this Sunday, every year, I think without fail, I give some sort of encouragement to read your Bible. Sometimes I take the whole Sunday and do it. I want to encourage you to feed on the Word of God. And turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. One last, one last thing I want to show you. I want to show you this because it's the pattern of belief that, that, we've, all, that we've all had. Jesus is passing through and he stops at a well and he visits a Samaritan woman And then we see this pattern emerge. He meets with her, he talks with her, he has this encounter with her. And it says in John chapter 4, verse 39, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of this Samaritan woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, is what she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two more days. Now watch this transition. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know what the pattern is? The pattern is that someone in your circle of relationship had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Their life was changed. They came and gave testimony of that to, to, to you. And you thought in your own mind, is it possible for me to be freed from my sins? Is it possible for me to have joy and peace and forgiveness and just a graciousness like has happened in this other person? And at some point, it shifts from the testimony of what someone else has said to a personal encounter of you and the risen Jesus. Here's what I pray for you. 
I pray that you would have conviction and trust in the word of God, not because of what other people say, not because of the testimony that they have of the Spirit's power in their life, the Spirit's instruction in their life, the Spirit's leading in their life, but first-hand encounter. And the best thing I can know how to do it as your pastor is this. Put yourself in the path of blessing. Someone once described the spiritual disciplines. And by the way, just daily reading God's word is a spiritual discipline. That daily being in the word of God and being led by the Holy Spirit, say, God, help me, help me understand what I'm about to read, is like putting yourself in a riverbed. Whether there's water there or not, if there's a trickle or a river flowing or totally dry, it's putting yourself there. When the rains do come, you're sure to get wet. You have put yourself in the path of blessing. Simeon put himself in the path of blessing because he was attentive to the word and he was spirit-led. And at the right time, man, the floods came and he drank deeply from the living water. Would you close your eyes? God, would you fill us this year collectively? And by that, what I mean is that all these individuals that are here, we collectively make up a church. We collectively make up this church family. God, would you fill us up with visions of you this year? Would you call to mind and remind us and fill our imagination with the reality that you are present? God, right now as we sing, we're singing directly to you. We're not listening to a band perform. We're not singing for each other. We're not going through a ritual. We are communicating our heart back to you and hearing from you. God, I pray that you would guard and nurture and develop our time in the word, not so that we can look for eternal life in the words themselves, God, but so we can encounter the risen Jesus. Amen.